You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What's going on, everyone? Jared Sandler here with you, welcoming you to the Justice Sec podcast. I'm excited about today's episode with a radio legend and TV legend, really, from the Northeast. But before we get into the guest and the episode, just want to remind you, I'd really appreciate if you'd consider subscribing or liking or commenting or just simply sharing the link. Uh, The channel's got all sorts of content covering uh, a a breadth of sports, not just one sport or or one discipline, interviews that are serious, that are uh, intended maybe to to have more levity, commentaries, trying to cover the, the relevant subjects in the sports world and uh, I encourage you to browse around the channel and again see what you like and and maybe what your friends and family might like and if you feel compelled to share well I certainly would not uh, decline if you were to do that and and would appreciate that for sure. Alright episode 37 of the Justice Sec podcast as I mentioned is with a true legend. There are certain people in any industry that uh, they transcend a region and, and you know about them, even if you've never met them or uh, maybe even if you haven't, in this case, listened to them. I, it took me a while in my broadcasting life before I did listen to Howard Eskin, who is a fixture in Philadelphia and the Northeast and in a lot of ways, a pioneer. He's not someone who shies away from controversy. He's not someone who uh, is unafraid to stir it up. But in a lot of ways, that's in part why he is so renowned and has had the success that he's had. He's not liked by everyone, and he's not afraid to uh, address that and acknowledge that he's someone who works his tail off and someone who helped shape the sports radio industry that we know today. And so I'm excited for you to hear my conversation, episode 37 of the Justice Sec Conversation with Philadelphia radio and TV legend Howard Eskin. All right, Howard, so the first question is kind of a toss-up, taking whichever direction you'd like, but when you think back to your childhood, what are the things that stand out most to you? Um, (laughs) You know, that's actually a very, very interesting question. My childhood, well, I love sports, so I thought about playing sports. Now, I don't know when I started. I don't know how young, but my father was a big sports fan, Uh, I don't think I was a bad kid. I think I was a good kid because um, if I didn't listen to my parents, I was in deep trouble. Uh, so, but sports, uh, it just, it started from the beginning. I, I don't know. I just, uh, you know, you do the kid things. And then I guess when you get older, you do the sports things. But um, I just thought about sports. And as I got older in my childhood, I thought more and more about sports. But it was kind of my main focus. School was not on the top of my list. Matter of fact, I don't think it was even in the top five of my list. (laughs) So, so, uh, you know, it's sports and then it was sports and then it was sports and then it was lunch and then it was dinner and then it was sports. (laughs) I was, I was a heavy kid at different points in my life, uh, different times in my life. I don't know how heavy I was as a kid, but I got heavier when I, in high school, I was a heavy kid. And then I, I lost weight, 60-some pounds in high school, and I've, I've fought it ever since. So uh, uh, 
but my childhood was it was one simple word was was sports was my biggest focus and that's the thing that that I was thinking about and obviously led to what I think is a pretty good career some people may differ but it's it's what it is so um, but I learned through the years more than sports but you know it was just it was activity uh, along those lines what was it about sports that captivated you and, and drew you in you know, I think it was because my father. Uh, my father didn't play professionally, but he played in leagues and he played different sports. He played uh, in a softball league, and he, uh, you know, back then uh, the fathers were in a bowling league, and I wasn't. I, bowling was just kind of like a fun thing, but I never took it seriously. But I guess baseball was my first love because that was what my father uh, always did. But that was the reason. I think more than anything else, uh, it was because my father, and it was fun. Uh, and that's when kids, and it's unfortunate uh, that baseball has kind of hurt themselves with a lot of the things they've done. Uh, analytics are, are just killing the game. But uh, it, it, kids now have transformed the computers, but I was lucky. It wasn't about uh, Fortnite, and it wasn't about video games. You know, when I would go down to vacation spots and I'd play uh, the video games, Pac-Man and all that other stuff, which goes way back, I guess. Maybe maybe not that far back. But uh, it was the activity and it was my dad and, and those were the kind of things. So I could always play uh, sports and then playing in leagues and then playing in school. But it was my father. The, the focus really was my father, which was a big sports fan. Uh had season tickets to uh, uh, the Phillies. Had season tickets to the basketball. Uh, wasn't a hockey fan. I wasn't a hockey fan when I was a kid. And my father, although a football fan, wasn't big on the on the owner. Uh, uh, so because he was kind of in the same business at the time. But I went down every Sunday. I went down every Sunday to a football game. So, but. Uh, so, yeah, so, it, it, again, it, your parents are a big influence, and he influenced me, and I remember before he passed away, and this is kind of a moment in my life, um, the Eagles were playing in Tampa. He moved, when he retired, he moved about three three miles away from where the Phillies played in Clearwater, Florida, because he was a big baseball fan. So he, he liked the beach. Uh, he loved, loved baseball. He went to see the minor leaguers all the time uh, down uh, in Clearwater. But he came over and he had dementia uh, later in life before he passed away. And he came over to the, my sister drove him over to the hotel where the Eagles, where I was staying with the Eagles. And um, he referenced the fact that he got me interested in sports. I think he wanted that memory. Hopefully he remembered it more than five minutes after we spoke. Uh, but that memory that because of his interest in sports, he got me interested in sports and it led to uh, to a good career. But the influence, obviously, people get influence from their parents, and that was um, that was the influence, uh, among other things that I got from my dad. I read Howard that you were shy growing up, which anyone who's listened to you or is familiar with your work would probably think that's a just a bold faced lie. Uh, but you you've you've obviously grown from that. But I'm curious because when I learned that and read that. I kind of feel the same way. I'd have friends who would just laugh if I were to say, no, no, I'm, I actually 
I was and, and still have some shy tendencies, but I kind of get what you're saying when, you know, you were shy and, and maybe you're not as shy now, but for me, it's a comfort in talking about sports, whether it's broadcasting a game or doing a sports talk show that for whatever reason allows me to come out of that shell. What was it like for you growing up shy and, and how did you evolve and develop from that into the, the personality you have today? Well, <laughs> The personality I have today, which is very, uh, uh, very outspoken. Uh, I, you know, I didn't really get out of that shell um, until I started working in the business. Now, in the business, I didn't get, you normally don't do the first thing that you want to do in the business. So I was a production engineer. I worked in Washington, D.C. I worked in New York, my home's Philadelphia. But I worked in D.C., I worked in New York, uh, and uh, I was a disc jockey in some places. And I was always, um, I guess, nervous or shy when people were in the studio. Now you can parade a herd of elephants through the studio, and you can walk in whenever you want. And I can, you know, when I went into television, uh, I didn't want to do it. And it was a, um, the biggest personality in Philadelphia television. I worked uh, with as a disc jockey and he pushed me when I had an opportunity to do that, but I didn't do it until I was in the business. And I just, and I don't know what got me out of it. I just must've felt more confident, um, in myself and what I had to say. But when I focused on sports, I didn't really think about the shyness that I had. It's amazing that you I don't know where that in my my stories, whatever that I I know I've said I've been a, I was a shy guy when I was a kid, uh, but it was just that I was just uncomfortable, I guess, uh, outside of sports around pretty much around uh, I'll say women. But back in high school, it was girls. Uh, so I'll share something with you. I never had a date in high school uh, because I was just that shy, and I didn't feel like I was ready for television because I didn't feel like I, I was uh, confident enough in myself. And this one guy's name is Jim O'Brien who passed away in a parachuting accident in 1984. Uh, it's like a year after I got into television and he was the one that kind of pushed me when I didn't, I was offered a job because my radio show was so successful in television to be the main guy and I really didn't want to do it. He told me to kick my ass if I didn't take the opportunity. So I just said, Jim, I'm really not comfortable in TV. But then Channel 3, which, you know, networks had flip-flopped all over the t place at the time. It was NBC, now CBS. But whatever, they sent me to a coach. And because I was doing radio, now they don't train people anymore in television. You just throw them in there, just do it. And it doesn't make any difference. <laughs> it really, the business has really become kind of a joke. It's a shame. It's not, television is not what it used to be in terms of sport and newscasts and what they do. But whatever, he just uh, says, you better do this. And uh, I guess the things that kind of brought me out of it, there's always moments my first night in television was September 20th, 1982. I was at, it's called, I'm sure you've heard of the Maxwell Club in Texas. Uh, it's, uh, it's a big football club and they give out awards each year and they have a big luncheon uh, 
now it's earlier in the year, but but then it was on that day. So because I was new at the station, the station put me at the head table, and Dick Vermeil and I are now good friends. But at the time, because I was critical of how hard and how how much time he spent coaching players, I was critical of him in this approach. So he just ripped me a new one at this lunch. And this is my first day of television, and I haven't even been on the air yet. So now I get ripped at a luncheon by Dick Vermeil, uh, who was then still coach of the Eagles. Uh, and then I'm getting ready to do my first night in television. And the NFL, I still see the clock in my head up on the wall. It was the 6 o'clock news. It was near 5 o'clock or 4 o'clock or whatever it is anymore. 6 o'clock news. And at 5.09, the NFL players called a strike. So now, instead of just getting ready for a sportscast, I'm the lead story in the newscast in my first day in television. So I didn't have time to think about being nervous. I didn't have time to remain in the shell. And it was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me because once I did it, I said, man, I'm just, I'm just being myself. I'm just talking about something. You know, I was on the phone until I got on the air trying to get information about the strike and what was going on. And I was the lead story on my first night in television, and it kind of took me out of it. And when I did highlights, uh, do highlights on the news, I know a lot of sportscasters script it. They write it out. And if you have the wrong tape that time, you know, that can happen. And then you're reading something which is totally not what's on the screen. So I said to myself before I even did it, I am not scripting my highlights. I'm writing down. I know what plays are there. And I'm writing down the plays, and I don't know what I'm going to say. I just say it because I'm just back in my element of not being shy and just talking to people, uh, real and natural. Just talk to people. And that's what I did. And the third night in television, the producer put the wrong highlight in. But I recognized who the player was while I'm looking at it, and I knew what happened in the game. And I said at that point, I said, you know, this is – I didn't say it was cake – but I thought, you know, this this is going to be okay. And I just got more and more and more comfortable with myself while I was talking to people. And you don't focus in television on how many people are watching. You just focus on talking to one person. And because, again, I was talking about something I was comfortable with, I became more and more relaxed in doing what I did. And now I just... I'll say what I'll say. Well, in this in today's world, you can't say whatever because you're going to get in trouble uh, if you say whatever, which is kind of a problem. You can't. But I'm still outspoken. I'll still have my opinion. I'll still say things. I'll still. Um, I don't think that you know. I know people don't want to hear it. I don't think there should be baseball or basketball right now. Hockey's irrelevant. They're not even playing in this country anyway. Playing outside the country when they start playing again. Uh, I kid. I kidded with the guys on the radio station this morning here in Philadelphia WIP, and it's two hockey guys on the air. I said, I said, you know, I don't care about hockey. I started whining. They said it's not even in this country. It's outside the country. So. Um, but the reality is, you know, I'm outspoken. People don't want to hear it. Uh, I mean, our salespeople don't want to hear it because they're trying to convince people to buy advertising for what's coming up. Uh, in, and I hope there's football. I hope there's all of them, but I hope we're safe, too. But the reality is, you know, I'm getting away from the point. The point is I am very outspoken, and I'm not afraid to be outspoken. And it's just a comfort that I – I got probably in the first 
of doing talk radio. Uh, I started doing talk radio back, well, back when hardly anybody was doing it, uh, back in 1979. And I just got more comfortable by doing it. It took me about three months. And then just say the program director says, just say what you think. Okay, here it comes. And if the guy's a dope, the guy's a dope. If the guy's a moron, the guy's a moron. Uh, and I'll call him a moron, and I'll call him a dope if he has no clue. After I've tried to explain something to him, and he doesn't want to hear it. So it, it, it's just it's an evolution of things, and um, I can't say I'd ever change anything that I ever did. You know, maybe I wished I wasn't as shy when I was a kid. But hey, listen, I played sports, and it was a focus, and maybe that led me to where I am today. Who knows? And who knows where I am today? Who the hell knows where I am today? So that's another part of it, too. Howard, I'm curious, have you, was there a wall you had to break through from bosses or people who tried to to temper your personality, or has that always been invited uh, or for the most part, has it always been invited throughout your various steps? Well, there were times, I'm sure, uh, because I still believe that I did. Um, I don't know if I was the first full-time uh, sports talk show. Well, I, I was the first full-time sports talk show. I started in 86 in New York. There's a station, I don't know if the people there know about it, WFAN, which is a big talk station in New York. Uh, so I, uh, uh, they started in like late 87, 88, I, and, but we weren't, our station wasn't full-time sports. The general manager wanted to do that eventually. So, you know, when I thought back and uh, when I started doing it, I, I don't know if I was different because there wasn't that many people out there. Uh, in 79, but I was outspoken. Um, I broke a lot of stories. Uh, one story, Ryan Sandberg would have never been a Chicago Cub if I hadn't made one phone call. And you're, I'll, I'll tell you that story if you want to hear it. Love it. He, would have never, uh, he would have never been a Chicago Cub. Uh, but I, I just started evolving and doing it, and nobody nobody really stopped me because I guess it was it was different and, and it was entertaining and uh, you know, it was invigorating and it, it, it was energy. And so no, nobody ever stopped it. There was one program director I had, uh, at WIP who, when I tried to put the proper and correct facts on the air, he didn't want to hear it. He says, I don't care whether you're right or wrong. I, I just care whether people are entertained. I said, well, I care whether I'm right or wrong. I'm not just going to say something and perpetrate something that I know is not correct and allow it to go on. Well, the other guy's saying that, you know, our other guys are saying, I said, well, they're wrong. I'm telling you, I know. I talk to people directly involved. They're wrong. Uh, so I, I got through that hurdle. That was the only time I think they ever told me not to say anything. Now in the world we live in now, uh, certainly you got to think about anything that could be construed the wrong way or um, uh, create a, a, I don't want to say a social problem because we always fall back to that now and we shouldn't. It, not everything's a social problem, but there are problems in the world. But you certainly got to be careful. But as far as an opinion, 
I have no problem with that. Now, if you want to hear about why Ryan Sandberg became a Chicago Cub, and it was because of me, um, and he would have never played with the Phillies. He was in the Phillies minor league system. Uh, he, he couldn't play third or short because he didn't have the arm, uh, didn't have a strong enough arm to play third or short. He was kind of blocked out at second base because the Phillies had a player by the name of Manny Trio, who was really, really good. Nobody gave him enough credit because when the Phillies won the World Series in 1980, he wasn't even thought about because you had Bowie, you had Schmidt, you had Carlton, you had Pete Rose. You had all these really good players. And Manny Trio was just a great, I mean, when I say great, a great defensive third baseman, one of the best playoff series in the history of baseball, it was a five-game series against the Astros. Nolan Ryan had never lost a lead uh, beyond the seventh inning at that point, and the Phillies were down 5-2, and they ended up winning that game and then winning the next game to get into the World Series. But anyway, so in 1982, uh, I'm working at the first FM station I worked at doing talk. And I know Larry Boa was trying to get a new contract from the Phillies. So I'm... I just made a call during one of my commercial breaks. During a break, I called him. He was still in Clearwater, Florida, uh, in spring training. And I said, uh, hey, Bo, uh, you going to get your new contract? He says, no, and they're trading me. I said, what? Yeah, they're going to trade me to the Cubs. Uh, and Keith Moreland was involved. He was a catcher. And for Yvonne De Jesus, who was a shortstop for the Cubs. I says, can we go on the air? And he says, yeah. So I put him on hold. We come up on the air. We talk about the trade. Well, that night and the next morning, the Cubs fans went absolutely ballistic. Now, Ryan Sandberg was not in that deal. Uh, the Cubs fans went absolutely ballistic because they loved Ivan De Jesus. It was a good guy. I mean, a nice shortstop. Not a great player, but a good player. Uh, they loved him. So the Cubs called the Phillies and said, we have to call off this deal. And if we can figure out something to do beyond this, fine, but we can't make this deal. So uh, they called the Phillies were really pissed. They were pissed at me, but in, in reality, I was just doing my job, and they were, they were really angry that it came out and it blew up the deal. So three weeks later, the Phillies and the Cubs reworked the deal, and the Phillies threw in Brian Sandberg to the deal. So if I hadn't made that phone call, if Larry Bow and I had not gone on the air and talked about it, the deal would have been made, and the Cubs fans would have been angry after it had already been made and it would have been too late, and that would have been the end of it. But uh, by, by making that call, by having him on the air, by talking about it, they had to rework the deal. So Ryan Sandberg, and he knows this, uh, became a Chicago Cub because of that phone call I made and Larry Bell coming on the air, which blew up the original deal without Ryan Sandberg in it. So <laughs> it's kind of interesting the way, uh, the way things happen. And I'll never forget that. So they were really angry at me. The Phillies were really pissed. Uh, but, hey, it is what it is. And Ryan Sandberg could have – I don't know how he could have found – he wouldn't have found an opportunity to play with the Phillies anyway. So it was, it was kind of better for everybody. And Dallas Green ended up being the president who was then – and the farm director for the Phillies ended up being the president uh, of the Chicago Cubs, so it worked out well for him, too. Howard, I think it was, and, and that's an amazing story, and I appreciate you sharing that. It, on the, Along those lines, I think it was this offseason in baseball where 
the Red Sox and Dodgers had a trade that involved Mookie Betts, but there was such an uproar from fans, and and, and I don't know if that is exactly why the deal was uh, put on hold and then ultimately reworked, but there was a, a legitimate period of time where that deal was reported as done, and then nope, it wasn't done, and we're not talking about 24 hours later the deal got consummated. I, I want to say it was a week, maybe more, uh, certainly a few days, but I, I guess I'm curious, Do how, how much of an influence do you think now social media is a part of it? You know, it wasn't back then with your Ryan Sandberg story, but how much of an influence do you think social media and then the sports media that controls the conversation can have on a team or a decision maker like a general manager? Well, I think it's an influence for sure. And by the way, it's not social. If you ever look at the Twitter, it's uh, the people on Twitter. It's a haven for haters. So it's not social, and it is not media. It's just a lot of people just making up stories. You don't have to really uh, uh, get sources, but that's just my, my personal view of, and I use it. I mean, on Twitter, I have over 132,000 people follow me, and and there's still a lot of haters on there, and I understand it, but it, it, it kind of works for me. But it also works for the fans. Uh, Bryce Harper signed, uh, as we all know, with the Phillies last year. Now, they were going to go after either Bryce Harper or Manny Machado. They really needed Machado because they needed a third baseman more than they needed a right fielder and because their defense was brutal. And Machado, that's one thing he can do well, and he would have been the Phillies' third baseman. So it was either Machado or Harper. Once Machado signed with San Diego, the Phillies really felt pressure from whether it was talk radio, whether it was social media, whatever it was out there, and talk radio has become like the lifeblood of, of many cities. And whatever, either one, whichever one it was, whether it was social media or talk radio or both, uh, the Phillies' ownership felt pressure to do something. Now, I think they really wanted Bryce Harper anyway, but they didn't want to pay him, although it's over 13 years. So the numbers at the end aren't going to be worth it. But the way they they lowered the yearly uh, salary helps them out too. But they felt like they had to sign somebody big last off season, Not the one that just passed, the one before that. They really had to sign somebody big. And I think that was – that was – I would say 50% of the reason why the Phillies signed Bryce Harper because they couldn't, was it the best thing to do? They were going to try to wait for Mike Trout. Uh, I don't know that even though he's from the area, uh, would have come back to Philadelphia. I think he likes the comfort of playing in California and he comes back home. These are Eagles games all the time. He comes back home in the winter because he loves the snow. It's another thing about Mike Trout. It's crazy. And he lives in California. Uh, but he comes back for the winter. Uh, but they were going to, kind of try to save it for Mike Trout. Uh, you know, you had Rendon out there. You had players out there that would have been better for the Phillies than Bryce Harper, but they needed to do something with one more chip left for a big free agent. And, uh, uh, but it, it, it was a big part of, of the influence of the fans uh, that, and that, I think that's why Bryce Harper is a Philly, a big reason why Bryce Harper is a Philly. Howard, I have a, a few questions about the way you go about things. And one thing I know you do, and I, I've read that it's something that that was and I think still is important to you, 
is just showing up. And I think that is something that for whatever reason, and, and I'm a, a just a few years younger than you, but it is something that I grew up with the understanding that if you're going to talk about someone that you need to be there. And, and not only does it help just from a familiarity and making sure that you, you've got your stuff together, but it's the right thing to do. But I see a lot of people that I work with and, and, you know, whether they're, they're teammates or just peers, they don't go, you know, they, they haven't stepped foot in an arena or a stadium or wherever uh, in years. And that's something that I know was, and, and I think still is important to you uh, showing up and, and chasing stories and, and actually putting in that extra effort beyond the time when the, the red light is on and you're on air. And I, I guess, how did you develop that understanding that that's the, the way to do it? And, and why has that been so valuable and important to you? Well, I think in the end, the players respect you for it. They may not like, well, they don't a lot of times like what you said. I've gotten into some almost, I'll say almost fights when players wanted to come after me. And there were a few players and, uh, uh, it's just, you've got to show up. I, I, the guys, a lot of the guys that are on talk radio nowadays and on TV, TV guys, whether I was doing TV or radio, I always went to the ballpark. I always showed up. You've got to. And I was outspoken on TV because that's when they hired me at the first station I worked at. They wanted me to be myself. They wanted me to be outspoken. And obviously on radio, you, you really have to go down. I call these guys on the air now, hit and run. They hit and they run and you never see them. Uh, and you got um, That's why sometimes the writers are so soft with these guys. They're afraid players won't talk to them. In the end, and Bryce Harper told me this last year uh, when he came, and I got to know Bryce, who I didn't know him, what kind of person he was. I saw the one soundbite that we always see from Bryce. Uh, that was a clown question, bro. Uh, and it looked like he was mad. And maybe it was out of context. Maybe it wasn't. Uh, but Jason Worth, who I've become friends with, we did not have a good <laughs> at first. We didn't have a good relationship, and he and Bryce Harper are good friends, obviously teammates for quite a while. And, um, and the Jason Worth story uh, was: I had a Charlie Manuel came after me one time because I didn't think Charlie Manuel. He's a great person, but he was really a, a weak. I'm a brutal manager, brutal, brutal. I mean, it's just brutal. Guys just just put them out there and they played. Oh, Charlie Manuel, Charlie Manuel. So the team wasn't playing well, and I said something about Charlie being tough because I, I just saw something before that game where Lou Pinella was all over his players. And sometimes you have to be tough with them. Sometimes you have to know when to be tough with them. So he said to me, so you don't think I'm – I asked him the question about being tougher with his players. You don't think I'm tough enough? Why don't you step into my office? I'll show you I'm tough enough. I said, so sure enough, I didn't back down because I'm at the, I was at the news conference. So I walk around. He walks one way back to his office. The media walks the other. He's waiting for me at his office. He says, you coming in? I said, yep, I'm coming in. So uh, the PR guy said, well, I'll stay out here. I said, no, you can come in too. It doesn't matter to me. And then he had a couple of coaches there. So we got on to uh, yelling at each other. And I said, and I said, you don't have to be tough on me. It's those guys out there you need to be tough on. This is ridiculous. He says, you've been ripping me for three years. And then in my mind, I have to calculate really quickly. He wasn't there three years yet. 
I says, he was there basically a little over two. Uh, it was into the third year. I says, you've been here three years? And he came flying around the desk, behind his desk, and came after me. And I'll never forget Milt Thompson. Now, he wasn't going to hit me. Milt Thompson holds him back. I says, you know, this is ridiculous. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm done. I'm done. Uh, I says, I'm out of here. I'm going to the locker room. So then he walks by in the locker room, and I'm waiting for a pitcher who didn't last two seconds with the Phillies, a guy named Freddie Garcia. Brutal. What a brutal pitcher. So we're waiting for him in his locker, and he's walking by. He said, I should drop you right here. I says, why don't you grow up? And he says, I've been grown up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that was just one of the times. But I was there, and Charlie and I, you know, we BS with each other. We talk to each other when we see each other, usually in spring training at times during the year. It's with the team. We won't see anybody this year because we're not going to have contact, I don't think, with anybody. It'll be all Zoom calls. Uh, but So that was one of them. Mitch Williams was another because I said on the air that the Phillies shouldn't sign him to a three-year contract because those guys that throw hard can lose their fastball at any three-year contracts now, nothing, uh, their fastball at any time. Well, sure enough, uh, after I rip him, he goes ballistic on me. He says, I'm in the manager's office. He said, you. I said, I have a name. Uh, he says, yeah, I want to see you. So I come out in the locker room. So, you know, I, somebody told me what you said on the air. I says, yeah, why don't you tell me what you heard, and then I'll tell you whether I actually said that. Uh, and, and so he told me, I says, yeah, I don't, I, guys throw hard. I don't think he can give long-term big money contracts to. I just, it's my opinion. So he says, you know, I should drop you right here. I said, I'll tell you what, why don't we go out outside the locker room, and then uh, you say and do whatever you want. And I knew he wouldn't. If he did, he'd kick my ass. So I would have been, you know, fried. Uh, but you, you can't back down. And then sure enough, like it was the next day. And one of the reasons I didn't, I wasn't a big Mitch Williams fan, and again, now we're friends, was he walked too many people. Uh, so he comes in. He's got a one-run lead in this game. It's the ninth inning. He gets two outs. He walks two. Then there's a double. Phillies lose the game. So one of the players told me, Says, he says, boy, Ed Howard Eskin's going to, he told him, he said, Howard Eskin's going to come after me now. He says, oh, my gosh, <laughs> it's going to kill me. So, in essence, I did. That's a, that was one of the reasons. So, we talked about it and kind of got through it. Todd McGraw was one of those guys that, you know, I had some differences, differences of opinion. John Crook, a stupid reason for doing it. But, you know, you just, you got to be honest with yourself. And in the end, football players that I've criticized, like Randall Cunningham, I would bury him because all he cared about was himself when he was with the Eagles. That's all he cared about. Now we're very friendly. He was in Philadelphia last year at a game. Hey, how are you? Do I have his number if I ever need to get in touch with him? It's crazy. But but anyway, back to the Bryce, uh, the Charlie Manuel thing with Jason Wirt. So, and I just, because I wanted to get to the Bryce Harper thing, he told me something very interesting. Jason Worth. Um, stared me down. I was on ESPN the next morning after this. And the person in the anchor asked me, did anybody in the locker room say anything to you? I said, no, but there wasn't many guys in the locker room. But Jason Worth, this guy, Jason Worth, it was his first year with the Phillies, stared me down 
And I said, who the hell is Jason Worth? A marginal major league ball player. And I said that because he's making like 700000 a year. They signed him. You know, he was injured from the Dodger organization, whatever. Uh, so uh, he didn't say anything to me the entire year. And then when they won the division, he poured champagne on me, not out of happiness, but out of anger. And he said to me, marginal major league ball player, huh? Marginal major league ball player? Says you waited all year to tell me that. So we sat down and talked after the season, understood it, told Harper the story. And what Harper said to me, he said, listen, I know it's your job, and we'll see what happens. If you have anything uh, to say, uh, you have the right to say it, and I can't be mad at you if you're doing your job. I says, okay, great. I says, I'm sure there'll be something along the way. I didn't like his backing of Blake Snell this year when Blake Snell, that moron, said, hey, bro, I'm risking my life. You know, come on, just shut up and take your money. That's all you want is your money anyway. But I didn't like that, and I said things, whether he heard it or not. But Harper and I get along great. Um, so, But the fact that he said that to me was good. And there's players that understand it. Eagles players, once they leave, once they separate themselves, Allen Iverson is a bad, yeah, everybody knows who Iverson is. Oh, I would, I would kill him all the time. He'd come to practice, whether it was late or he wasn't in the best shape because he was out all night, whatever it was. And now he loves me. Every time he, he sees me, and says, hey, I love you. <laughs> so he made me realize that I was just doing my job. But he had to separate himself from that. So in the end, I really believe, you know, some players may never talk to you again. It's just, hey, that's, that's life. But you got to do the right thing. And that's why I, I am the way I am. But they have to respect me because I show up. They have to. And if they don't, that's their fault. Because um, I'm there if you want to talk, you want to talk to me. Whether it's I say coach has to be fired and that's happened, whatever it is, and they want to talk to me, I'll sit down and talk with you and explain. You can explain to me your side, and uh, I would be happy uh, to explain that on the air if you so choose. So it's just, I just learned to do that. You have to have some guts though when you walk in there. It's not easy after you rip a guy walking in there. Uh, and and that's the one thing I had. A, it didn't take me long, but it took me a little while. I've got to go in there. And when I go in there, I think they'll understand. If they want to talk to me, I'm here if they want to talk to me. One. All right, so we've kind of talked about – you know, your, your, your personality and, and your style. And, and some of that comes from TV a lot. You know, I, I think that people are familiar with here recently on the radio and, and you hosted for 25 years and, and you're in, I'm sure countless halls of fame. I, I know uh, at least a few and are incredibly well known throughout the country because of the success you had. And uh, you, you did sports talk radio uh, I think with, with WIP before that was a big deal around the country where now you go to markets and there are, there are multiple sports talk stations, sports radio stations. And, and they're just, that wasn't the case when you started. So I guess when you think to your, your 25 years as a, as a host, and, and I know you're still obviously very active, but what are, what are the things that stand out to you about the evolution of your career and the industry and, and where it was when it started and, and how it just continued to grow and become the, the, I don't, I don't mean monster in a bad way, but the monster of a, of an influence that sports radio has to this day. It really, it really has, uh, 
evolved. I won't say changed because what did it change? It wasn't there. Was, it wasn't there. I remember doing a show from the Super Bowl. I used to go to spring training. I used to set up the things myself in my hotel room, and I had players come over uh, at the Super Bowl. I was there when there were, I think at most, there wasn't even 10 stations there. That was Super Bowl 25. That was the Gulf War situation with the Super Bowl. Uh, and I was one of maybe 10 at most. Now there's like well over 100, uh, maybe 150 stations. that uh, Now they call it Radio Row. Walter Payton's walking by one time. Hey, Walter, can you come down and talk? Yeah, no problem. You know, nowadays, people are pulling and tugging if Walter Payton, and may he rest in peace, if, if a guy like Walter Payton was walking through, uh, you go, oh, can you come on a show? Man, it was just, yeah, no problem, sit down. But it, it's changed because it got it got so much bigger. And I remember I spoke to uh, a PR group. They were in Philadelphia. Their league meetings were in Philadelphia one time. And they asked me to speak at their, uh, the PR directors had a meeting about sports talk radio because it's frustrating the PR guys when guys go on the air and they say things which they know are inaccurate. The PR guys are angry uh, because it's it's wrong information. There's a point where you just got to suck it up. If you can pass along the proper information, if that if you can do that and do that, and if they don't want to pay attention, which in a lot of cases they don't, you just got to move on and you've got to suck it up and accept it. I even get angry. I mean, I don't do a show every day now during afternoon drive, but I, I, I'm on like four shows a week and have my own show on Saturday. Cause after 25 years of afternoon drive, I wanted to leave. No, 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 no. We want to, we want you to stay. So now I'm the sideline reporter for the Eagles and, uh, I do shows. So it's all part of it. Um, I can't say that I miss doing four hours every day, although some days, uh, it, it's really good. But I like the freedom of going to practices, although I, you're not going to many practices nowadays. I don't know what football is going to do uh, in today, you know, this year. But I, I enjoy talking to the players. I enjoy that I don't have to rush back to the station. Um, I enjoy being at the uh, sometimes at the beginning of games. Uh, but whatever the case, radio has changed because people, people just want to be I don't want to say this in a bad way, but I'm going to say it anyway because that's who I am. They, you just don't have to be a loud mouth. I mean, you just don't have to be a guy just screaming and yelling just to scream and yell. And you don't have to be a guy. You don't. You can be entertaining and informative, but now guys worry too much because it's just, just the way the business is about just, well, if, if I just throw out something that gets people angry, even though it's not correct, that's fine. Uh, and that's the part that disappoints me a little bit. I mean, television sports guys are just, they're mailing it in. I mean, guys, some of these guys doing TV want to be taken away in handcuffs for stealing money because they don't do anything. Uh, they just have the producer put the sports cast together. They read the highlights and they're in and out. And that's the end of it. Never seen. We have sports casters in Philadelphia. They need directions to get to the stadiums. I mean, that's that they're never there, never. Uh, and that's a part of, of it that I don't like. I, I just, I, well, and again, I'm not going to change it. It's, it's already gone. As long as the, the ratings at WIP are off the charts, some guys don't care about being wrong. Some guys do. Uh, but it's, uh, there was an evolution. Uh, somebody told, uh, I had a, a Twitter fight with LeVar Arrington. If people don't remember, he was a linebacker at Penn state 
who was a pain in the ass for Joe Paterno. Uh, and then he had, he was doing a sports talk show in Washington. And now I think he might do some things for Fox sports network, but we had it cause he said something stupid. And I challenged him on Twitter. He didn't even know who I was. And somebody on Twitter said, LeVar, if it wasn't for Howard Eskin, you wouldn't even have the job you have today. Uh, meaning, and Tim Brando, who I still, still think works for CBS, said you know, one time, it made me feel good. I was at a radio uh, with the Super Bowl. He says, um, a lot of this is because of you, uh, of the way you started. And I don't, it's not just me, and other people did sports talk radio. Um, but it became very successful, and uh, I can't say that uh, I would have changed anything. But it's it's different than it was. Uh, but it is an explosion in America. Uh, it, it saved kind of AM stations for a while. Now a lot of it, uh, uh, not of the sports talk, and I did FM sports talk way before anybody even put it on FM because that was the station I was on in Philadelphia, the first one. It, it's just, uh, it's an evolution, uh, and in some cities there's at least uh, two sports talk stations. You would never, you have music stations and have multiple ones because the music's a little different, but sports talk in a city is sports talk in a city. Uh, and, and that's what it is. But I've enjoyed doing it and I still enjoy doing it. Otherwise I wouldn't do it anymore. But, uh, I, I wish some of the things uh, were a little bit different and it wasn't just people just yelling to make a point. But just make a point, and you don't have to yell all the time. Uh, it's just, hey, it's just, I am who I am, and I'm not going to change. And I'm glad um, because I think, I think that's what people want. Um, they, they want you to be real, um, and for real, for real, and keeping it real is the term. So that's who I am. Yeah. That ain't going to change. <laughs> I don't think anyone wants it to change. And you know, we have you. On, on radio in the DFW market, on the, the intercom sister station, the fan, uh, you know, when it comes to the, the Cowboys-Eagles rivalry. And, you know, I, I think rivalries in sports are important, and I think they're fun. Uh, you know, sometimes probably they, they go too far, but really it's it, it's an increased source of entertainment just, you know, beyond the the the, the surface entertainment that sports is. But how do you approach that? Because you, you come on and, and it's always so entertaining because, you know, I, and I think people listening <laughs> wouldn't be surprised. But, you know, you are you 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it seems like. It doesn't matter who you're talking to. You don't pander. You know, you're not going to just because you're on Dallas radio all of a sudden say, oh, well, no. I, but, you know, hey, it's just in fun. I love the Cowboys. You're, you're going to you're going to speak your mind. I guess, how do you approach those sorts of situations and, and rivalries, whether it's Philly or Eagles, Cowboys, or maybe it's a rivalry with, with the Phillies or the Flyers or the Sixers. How, how do you approach the dynamic of a rivalry? Well, I just approach it the same way. I have an opinion and I've called Cowboys fans years and years ago. I call them cockroaches or, or as they like to say in South Philadelphia, they put an extra syllable. It's cockroaches. And that's what they are, cockroaches. And why do I call them cockroaches? Because when things are going well, 
they're out there and they're all oh boy everything's great and they're out there but when they're not going well they go back into the muck and grime like when it's dark the cockroaches go back into the muck and grime and they hide from you so and that's what cowboys fans are uh they are uh they're out there when things are going well uh but it, i still have my opinion i I mean, I know the PR guy there I've known for well over 30 years because he came from the University of Miami where Jimmy Johnson came from. I like Jimmy Johnson, but people kill me in Philadelphia because they said, you were rooting for the Cowboys. I said, no, I was rooting for Jimmy Johnson because I, I, we had Rich Kotite. Now, who would you rather root for? Rich Kotite or Jimmy Johnson? Rich Kotite was a dope as a head coach. Jimmy Johnson was a great head coach. Uh, so, you know, those are the kind of things. And then uh, I think the quarterback you have, is the mo- one of the more overrated quarterbacks in the NFL. Maybe maybe the most overrated quarterback in the NFL. Is he good? Yes. Is he overrated? Dak Prescott, I've called, and Chris Collinsworth looks at me like I'm crazy because he thinks he's great. I said he's a one-year wonder. Check his numbers and when he gets his numbers, and check his winning. Uh, and so he – he does so many things that you can't win with in today's NFL. So, but I'm not afraid to say that uh, in Dallas. It's just that's just the way I feel. Hey, listen, I wish him. I, I hope Jerry Jones signs him. Uh, and, uh, Mahomes signed for 400 plus million or 450, whatever it is. I hope he signs uh, uh, Dak Prescott for a billion dollars. So it will screw up their cap so badly that they'll never be able to get good players. Because I, I just think, uh, I think, I believe what I believe just by watching and also, and also not just by watching, uh, but by seeing, uh, seeing what I see and talking to coaches. Howard, one thing you do is use your platform for good. And, you know, we've talked about you using your platform to share your opinions and and some of the confrontations, but I don't think I could have a conversation with you and, and feel like uh, we're, we're doing, you know, your career and, and what you do any justice if I don't bring this part up. Uh, and I think it's one of the really cool things about this industry. I know for me, I always told myself that if I got to a place where I had any little bit of a platform I wanted to start a charity and I've been able to do that and the reality is uh, I'm not the smartest person in the world I don't have any business sense and a charity you you do need to have some business sense but the platform that that I have has allowed that charity to have whatever level of success it has had and your platform is uh, uh mine a hundred times over and you there there are a lot of stories of you whether they become public or not, using that for good. I guess I'm just curious about that side of it, the human side of uh, the ability and the potential you have to make a difference and and what that's been like over your career. Well, I remember back, uh, I was at a function with Julius Serving. And I think one of, I think one of his sisters had lupus. So we were at a fundraiser for lupus. And he says, we as celebrities, he's obviously celebrity status a little bigger than mine, have to use what we have or should use what we have to help people uh, because I think, he said, I think that's part of our job. And he's right. Uh, And I always thought about, even before that, but that was early in my career, I thought about that when when I try to help people with charities and I try to raise money and the Eagles had a charity um, the last uh, couple of years for autism. It was a bike ride. 
So they asked me if I would do it. And uh, I have a nephew who's on the spectrum. And I do it for other charities. I'm, I'm going to do something for uh, for a food or a, a fill abundance, which helps people that don't have enough food and animal shelters because of the situation. Uh, there's not enough pets that are being adopted. Uh, and um, I've done it for leukemia. But the autism thing and the bike ride, it got to be such a – I just pushed and pushed – I raised close to $300,000 in two years, and I just still don't know how I did it. I got Mike Trout. Uh, he's been, you know, guys like him. He donated. I saw it, uh, a donation come through for $2,700, obviously, for his number. Kobe Bryant made a donation for $2,408. 24 and 8 were his two numbers in the NBA. I've known Kobe since high school, and his grandparents and his dad. But you get, but it's not just those people. It's other people. So that helps in the platform that you have to raise money. And if it's just, I don't know, just helping people that aren't as fortunate. Uh, thank God I have my health. Thank God my kids have their health. Thank God uh, they've, uh, my daughter just graduated Syracuse uh, and she's doing, she had a, a 3.9, which is great. And hopefully she'll get a job in the world where we're in right now. My other kids are doing well and my oldest son, uh, is the program director of the radio station I work for. He's the other people's boss. He will never be my boss. <laughs> I was going to ask never. you about that. <laughs> yeah, never be my boss. Never. Uh, so, but you know, he, he did it on his own, and I didn't tell him what direction he'll go in. He went to Syracuse, uh, to Newhouse, to the broadcast uh, part of it there. So he worked his way up and worked in different cities, but they're all doing well. Um, I have a son that does makes movies for. Uh, uh, for Disney. Uh, so he went to the film school at USC. So there's, and then I have five kids and they're all, they're all doing well. And I'm sure my daughter will do well, but it's just, uh, so they're healthy and that's great. I don't want to get off the point here. So I'm lucky. I'm lucky that I could afford to pay for a private school and their college education. And I'm lucky that they're healthy and I'm lucky that, uh, they'll all have, and they all have jobs or will have a job and be fine. So that's what I'm lucky for. And some other people aren't as healthy. And that's why, that's why I'm, I'm concerned about the situation that we're in in our country and sports doesn't care about anything but money. And that's not a good thing if people are going to get sick. And I don't want to hear young people get through it. It's who they infect. Uh, it, it's, it's not just them catching the virus. It, who do they come in contact with? What coaches have they come in contact with? Uh, uh, think about football. 90 players are going to report on July 28th to most camps. It's going to be 90 players. What the hell is going on? Uh, it's it just, we've got to be safe first, and uh, the first responders have to be safe. First responders can't get as many tests as professional athletes get. It's amazing. Uh, so I have a situation with that because I care about, I care about people. I care about their health. I might be considered uh, a jerk on the air. And the first thing people will ask some, some person, I, I, I know it all the time when somebody um, uh, who has, who knows me sees a, a friend of theirs or somebody and they find out that they know me. The first question they get is he really a bleep hole. <laughs> so, well, Hey, listen, uh, I, I am very opinionated, but, uh, it's easier to be nice to people than be mean. Uh, so 
uh, whatever it takes. I can't, you know, I can't stop for everybody and take, and I take, take a ton of pictures. And when I got the Super Bowl ring, I, I can't tell you how many people wanted to take a picture with the Super Bowl ring. I don't know that I can do it right now because you can't touch hands. I would give the kids the ring to put on and the parents would get so excited. But uh, it's it just, it's a shame the world changed. But uh, it's still, there's, what hasn't changed is it doesn't, uh, doesn't take much to be nice to people. It doesn't take much at all. I have a, a quick question and then a family question. But you mentioned your son, Spike, uh, who I guess would technically be your boss if you allowed for that to happen. Has there been a time where he's had actually had to say, hey, dad, uh, as your boss, I got to tell you to stop doing this? Or does he just know better than to, to get in your way and he stays off the tracks? No, no. If, if there's something that he uh, really thinks that I shouldn't do, they'll say it to me. It won't be a demand because uh, there's so many prima donnas in the business that he deals with it. And I'm not a prima donna. Uh, I'm not. I listen more than, than most of the people there. But, yeah, if he needs to say something to me, he will. Uh, but it doesn't have to happen that many times because I think I – I kind of know what I should and what I shouldn't do. Um, so, and there's not much, well, in today's world, there's more, more things that you shouldn't do than there used to be. And I understand that. And I'm uh, sensitive uh, to the situation. You know, for instance, I don't know. I was on the air uh, uh, when we did this. I was on the air uh, before we did this talking about Deshaun Jackson and the ridiculous, uh, asinine, stupid, moronic comments uh, that he posted on Instagram. What you got to tell some athletes is don't press send. Uh, and, uh, and they just, they don't know. And I get along with Deshaun, but, uh, you know, I, I just, when you have certain situations, like, what are you going to say? What are you going to say? Uh, because there's somebody that's not going to be happy with what you say. So you just deal with it. Uh, but you try to make sure that you're honest to yourself and honest to the people that you're speaking to. All right, so last question, Howard, and maybe this is a, a self-serving question because I'm curious, but I, I'd like to believe that uh, that that I would be considered someone who grinds, and I think that you, uh, with with your story and work ethic and, and the way you would hustle, uh, certainly would, would fit that description. Now, I'm married. I don't have kids yet. One day I hope to. I'm curious, how did you balance – having relationships and, 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 and having a family uh, and being a part of your family while also not necessarily losing the thirst and the hunger and the actual work to continue to grow in the industry? Or was that just a, a, a sacrifice that you had to make once you had a family and started to grow in that way? Well, honestly, and that's what I always try to be is honest. I don't think I spent enough time uh, with my kids. Uh, and I, I don't look back and, uh, they're all, uh, they're all okay with it. Uh, they don't look at it like that. It's like, uh, the son that's the boss of the other people at WIP and not my boss. I took down the spring training a couple of times and he got to meet, um, 
He has a really cool picture with Steve Carlton because I got along with Carlton very well. Uh, he's got a picture. Pete Rose always took care of him, gave him a bunch of stuff all the time. Uh, he met Wayne Gretzky. He had no clue, none, who Wayne Gretzky was. He was like six years old. Now, why would he have any idea who Wayne? I did an interview with Gretzky, and I took him along. So I tried to take him, uh, but I guess I didn't go to games as much with him because you couldn't sit down when you sat down on stands and my family had really good season tickets behind the visitors dugout for baseball and, um, you know, floor seats for basketball. It was just not comfortable for, it wasn't, it wasn't that it was uncomfortable. I shouldn't say that it was difficult because people would come up to you all the time and it really, um, it was really just, uh, uh, between the work and the difficulty with taking them around. Uh, I didn't do enough. But I guess in their minds, from what they tell me, I did plenty, uh, but I just never felt that I did enough. It's a, it's a hard balance to make, and I put so much time into my job and doing what I was doing. Uh, I don't know how I would do it differently, but I would think about it if I had it to do over again, just to add a little more time and maybe not go to every game, but go to 90% of the games, you know, different things along those lines. I would go to every game. I would go to every game, every sport. It's crazy. It was just, it was crazy. And so we'll, uh, we'll do something. Uh, uh, you know, I, I try to do it now, but I would do it a little differently if I was doing it. But I don't want to give up uh, the desire to do the best job I could possibly do. It's, a, it's really a tough, the, the, the real answer, it's really a tough balance. It really is a tough balance because sports is at night. It's a nighttime. It, it, it's basically at night, and that's what's difficult about that. Well, there you go. Episode 37 of the Justice Set Conversation with broadcasting legend Howard Eskin. And there's no doubt that it is a tough balance. Balancing work and balancing family in this particular industry because of the time difference, you know, sports are at night and typically people are conditioned to work during the day. And if you're married to someone who's uh, got a typical nine to five or, or job that's hours similarly and you work at night, you, you don't see each other often. And then you throw kids into the equation. It's not easy. And I definitely appreciate Howard's candor on that subject and, and the other subjects that we addressed. Uh, again, this is episode 37. That means there's 36 others. And if you haven't heard any of them, I encourage you to browse the channel, see which interviews might be of interest to you. Maybe all of them, maybe just some of them, uh, but a lot of people in and outside of the sports world who I hope you might find compelling. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, like, uh, share, comment, whatever, I'd love the interaction. I'd love the engagement here on my YouTube channel. Thanks again for tuning in to episode 37 of the Justice at Conversation. Looking forward to 38 with New York Times best-selling author and maybe my favorite author, Harlan Coben. That will come out next week, so so stay tuned for that. But until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and I'll talk to you soon.